Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, as Ranjur Locke pointed out to us last week, this is not the first time in the letter that Paul's been concerned about their thought life, right? What they're thinking about. Chapter 3, Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. Back in chapter 1, he says, would one mind strive side by side for the faith of the gospel? In chapter 2, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Verse 5, the same chapter, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then put negatively, in chapter 3, we saw that the enemies of the gospel, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame when minds set on earthly things. Paul is greatly concerned about what the church is thinking about. As one writer said, what, what you think about matters, and it matters more than you think. So here in this verse, Paul is hammering them with a list of six whatevers and two anythings. Right? Think about this kind of stuff, Paul says. The good stuff, we could say, true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent stuff. Stuff that's worthy of praise. Now, just to help us think about it differently, we could turn it on its head, I suppose, and put it negatively. You could say, don't think about the bad stuff. Don't think about stuff that's false, shameful, unjust, impure, heinous, disgraceful, sorry stuff, stuff that's worthy of condemnation. And I, I put it that way because we do think about lots of bad stuff. Some of it's really, really bad stuff that we fill our minds with. Matt Walsh writes this, he says, and these are, this is, these are shocking statistics, he says, we spend four billion hours a year watching porn. He says, sorry, I've just understated the problem. We dedicate, dedicated well over four and a half billion hours to watching porn on one porn site in 2016. One, just one site. Humanity spent twice as much time viewing porn in a year as it has spent existing on planet Earth. It all adds up to over 500,000 years worth of porn consumed in the span of 12 months. Since 2015, human beings have spent one million years watching porn. One million years. He says, I'm telling you this because, not because it's an interesting bit of trivia, but because these figures are serious. More than serious, they're staggering incomprehensible, unthinkable, apocalyptic, all the more so for Americans because we watch more porn than anybody else on earth. Porn, he says, is obviously America's favorite pastime. According to surveys, almost 80% of American men between the ages of 18 and 30 admit to watching porn regularly. Nearly 70% of men between 31 and 49 admit to it. Half of men from 50 to senior citizen age also confess to regular porn viewing. 30% of younger men say they watch porn every day. 
Porn viewership is not quite as common among women, but it's far more common today than it was 10 years ago. And he says, remember, too, this is just what people will admit to doing. It's no wonder that the porn industry is worth $97 billion, which is 100 times higher than the $750 million it was worth 20 years ago. Today, he writes, porn, um, porn grosses more in a year than Hollywood. It brings in more money than the NFL, NBA, and MLB combined. So what are you thinking about these days? You know, it's interesting. Last year, driven, I'm sure, in no small part by the pandemic, Americans spent more than an average of 1,300 hours on social media last year, according to one survey. Um, That's like two and a half months worth of your waking hours spent on social media. Britons spent a third of their waking hours watching TV or online videos in 2020. And somehow I can't imagine we're all that far behind our allies across the Atlantic, right? Now, I'm not suggesting that you need, please understand, I'm not suggesting you need to be a Luddite like me, right? Who, who hardly knows the difference between snap time and face chat, right? I, um, I'm just kidding. I'm on both SnapTime and FaceChat. <laughs> but I am saying we need to reflect on what we're thinking about during those two and a half months of our year that we spend on social media. And that staggering number doesn't include TV, TV viewing, which could be as much as another three hours a day, right? So if this eightfold list of Paul's Six whatevers, two anythings. Was the filter you poured your screen time through, would you need to change anything? I'm sorry, that's, that's the wrong question. What would you need to change, right? And don't forget, Daniel Cresswell would come up here and smack me if I didn't mention this. Don't forget the music you listened to. The lyrics, you walk around the house humming because they're stuck in your mind, right? Now, time, time pro, prohibits us from going through this list by item by item. But, you know, this afternoon, you could take a few minutes and you could just pray through it and ask God to show you what, how, what needs to be put away based on this list and How can you think more about these good and beautiful things? Um, And of course, the best place to find this kind of stuff, surely, is in the Bible, right? In Scripture. And there's no hope for this if you are not a daily Bible reader, okay? If you're going to be serious about following Christ, I hope you are, you've got to daily open your Bibles, and delight in the good stuff that's in there. And if you're stuck there, maybe Psalm 119 would be an awesome place to start to convince yourself how good and beautiful thinking about the Bible truly is. This, this is just an excerpt. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it's ever with me. 
I have more understanding than all of my teachers. The favorite seminary students verse right there. For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Just full of good and beautiful stuff. You could read Psalm 119 and just pray, God, help me love your words like this guy does. It's an amazing chapter. You can memorize verses that stand out to you or meaningful to you as you read the Bible. You can use post-it notes to put them on the mirror or on your fridge. You can put reminders on your phone. Every day about one o'clock, my phone pings me and says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Every day, my phone tells me that. Every day, James 1.19. It's good and noble and beautiful for me to think like that. Of course, you can add reading to this list, reading, not scrolling, but actually reading things, good books, articles, blogs that strengthen your faith. Um, One writer said, Paul is calling for followers of Christ to be attentive, reflective, meditative, discerning thinkers. What are you thinking about? You know, Paul may have I think he really does have things even broader than scripture in mind here. Um, Taking time to take in truly beautiful things in our culture and in our world. Um, Truly beautiful music. A grand sunset. A newborn. A friend's smile. The leaves turning. There are things in creation and in our culture that are truly lovely as Paul calls them, a kind of beauty that turns your heart and mind to the creator God. And to think about those things, he says. What is one thing that you need to rethink to better align your thinking with what Paul calls us to in this verse? Right? Six whatevers and two anythings. What's one thing that you should probably add or subtract Paul is not just concerned as he, as he leaves this letter to the church that he loves in Philippi. He's not just concerned with their thinking. He's concerned with their practices too. And in verse 9, he talks about that. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Practice these things. Paul, Paul is channeling his inner James here. Where James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And Paul's closing thoughts are of imitation. He says, he says to the Philippians, do what you've heard me teach. Do what you've seen me live before you. He's reiterating what he said back just in chapter 3. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So see, this, this is Christian leadership, right? This is Christian leadership. Follow me as I follow Christ. And that's always a bit awkward for those of us who are in leadership because we know we're not following perfectly. Gives us pause sometimes. But if you're at Northwake and you're, you're in a position of a place of leadership and you, you find that the awkwardness is getting to the point where you can't say this, You can't say, follow me as I follow Christ. Then we should talk, right? And figure out how to get you a break from leading 
so that you can reorder your life so you can be more followable, right? Be like Paul. Be like Paul, he's saying. Be like me. Follow me. And Paul is this challenging, encouraging example in so many ways, even just in this little letter to the Philippians. Think, think through just a couple of examples with me. He's an example in pursuing Christ. Verse 3, or verse 8 rather, in chapter 3, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He's an example in his teaching of Christ-like humility. Chapter 2 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's our example in looking forward to what waits us in heaven. In chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He's an example in sacrificial love. Chapter 1, he says, My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. He's an example in proclaiming Jesus. He says in chapter 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. In what way should you prioritize following Paul's example? Is it the way you pursue Christ or in embracing humility or looking to heaven or sacrificial love or proclaiming Jesus? Really, we're starting to ask that question. What is your takeaway from Philippians? Right? There ought to be something that follows you out of Philippians, right? What is that? Now, the focus shifts now, it seems, as we move on to verse 10, but it's probably more connected than it seems at first because Paul here is laying out yet another way that he's an example and a mentor to them and to us, and that's in contentment. But first, we see how this church loves and cares for Paul in verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So here Paul is being thankful. He's rejoicing in the Lord for a gift, likely financial, that the Philippian church sent to him there in prison. Some, for some reason, maybe their poverty or his inaccessibility, um, they haven't been able to care for Paul in this way before, but he had no doubt that they wanted to. And, and their love for Paul is now demonstrated in their generosity towards him. And this is the way of Christians, right? 1 John 3 says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? When someone is in need and we can help, we do. This is, this is part of following Christ. We, when someone is in need and we can help, we do. And this is what I love about um, this kind of 
chance for us to be extra generous called Gen 12 at North Wake. Um, it's based on Genesis 12 where we're blessed to be a blessing. And um, part of that is a neighbor-to-neighbor pledge we make where we just pledge money, but we keep it in our pocket ready to give away. And uh, it has been so fun to hear stories trickling in this year of people who are just giving money away to people they meet in need. Um, One family was being evicted and they needed transitional housing in a hotel and sure enough, people stepped up and paid for that. Um, Another family's been swallowed up by medical bills that their insurance don't cover and sure enough, people stepped up and helped with that. And in both of those instances, they were team sports. It was too big a need for any one person to meet so a bunch of people are getting together and helping. For Christians, generosity follows and expresses love. And these folks loved Paul, so they sent a gift to care for him. And remember, they were poor, famously poor. When Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8 about the poor believers in Macedonia, this is what he says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And these um, churches of Macedonia, what he likely has in mind at the forefront of his mind is this church in Philippi. And their poverty seems to kind of influence what he says next. Verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul Paul wants this church to know that his primary motivation for his joy isn't that his need was met. And we'll talk more about this next week. But he wants them to know that his rejoicing isn't primarily because his needs were met. And keep in mind, Paul is writing this from prison. So you have to get your mind around that. Paul is in prison. They send a care package, and he's rejoicing like Daniel Cresswell, but not over the gift. So I don't, have you ever gotten a gift from somebody that couldn't afford to give it to you? It's been my privilege to travel um, to places around the world, um, places like China and India, Um, in Africa places and to be invited into people's homes sometimes the floor is earthen and they share with me things they cannot afford to share with me whether that's a gift that they want want me to take or a meal they want me to share and the gift is all the more precious because of their that they could have they needed it more than me And so here Paul is rejoicing, not because his needs are met, but because of the pleasure that God takes in their gift. And Jake's going to elaborate more on this as he teaches us next week in the verses that follow. But here Paul says he's able to have that focus on what comes to them when they give rather than the gift that he gets because he's learned the secret of contentment. Look again at verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, 
abundance and need. So slow down and kind of walk through that phrase by phrase with me. Paul says he learned contentment. Now at this point, Paul had been following Jesus for maybe close to 30 years. Um, And he learned contentment along the way. As Pastor Tony Morita says, twice Paul says he learned contentment. Contentment wasn't zapped into his heart. Through many experiences, Paul learned that Christ was enough. And so in, in these verses we just read, four times he writes about his being in need. Verse 11, I'm not speaking of being in need. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low. I know the secret of facing hunger and need. Four times he references need, hunger, being brought low. Paul knows what he's talking about when he talks about being in need. Listen to this brief summary of the hardship and suffering and privation he faced um, as he served Christ. This is from his letter to the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11. He describes his life this way greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And this is how Paul learned to be content, by being in need over and over and over and finding each time Christ was enough for him. Now it's fascinating to me in this passage that three times he also mentions learning to be content in abundance and plenty. It's a different angle on contentment, but we who are rich need contentment as much as the poor do. In 2018, Harvard Business School undertook a first-of-its-kind study of over 4,000 millionaires in the United States, asking them about how much money it would take to make them happy. Each millionaire was asked to report how much they currently had, how happy they were on a scale of 1 to 10, and then how much more money they thought they would need to get to a 10 on the happiness scale. Shockingly, The largest response, 26%, was assigned to the category of 10 times more. The millionaire said, if I had 10 times more, then I could be happy. 24% chose five times more, followed by 23% at two times more. Only 13% of the millionaires said they currently have enough to be happy. Evidence elsewhere suggests that the rich actually steal more than the poor. Although shoplifting transcends categories, the article says the rich actually do steal more than the poor. A study cited in the American Journal of Psychology states that people with incomes of 70,000 shoplift 30% more than those earning 20,000 a year. And one of the the most pointed um, confrontations on this matter involved the actress uh, Lori Laughlin. 
She was sentenced to two months in federal prison for her role in a college admissions scandal. Um, There's a fraud scheme designed to ensure spots for their daughters at the University of Southern California as fake athletic recruits. You, you probably read about, heard about it. She's going to have to serve two years of supervised release, during which she must perform 100 hours of community service and pay a fine of $150,000. Her husband and co-defendant received five months in prison, a $250,000 fine, and 250 hours of community service. But during the hearings, U.S. District Judge Nathaniel Gordon uh, addressed both defendants. I want you to hear what he said to them. He said, here you are an admired, successful, professional actor with a long-lasting marriage, two apparently healthy, resilient children, more money than you could possibly need, a beautiful home in sunny Southern California, a fairy tale life. Yet you stand before me a convicted felon. And for what? For the inexplicable desire to grasp even more. So we, we should be uber clear this morning. Having more isn't the secret to contentment. It's not. Paul tells us the secret in the very next verse. Look, look at verse 13. I can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. And at this point, I'm going to do my best to channel my inner Ben Merkel, who uh, taught this at North Wake beautifully in March and did an amazing, phenomenal teaching at Southeastern prior to that that I'll post on our leader blog this week for you to watch and enjoy. Um, but let's walk through this oft-quoted verse slowly together and think carefully about it. Um, it. Ben said that it was the most searched Bible verse online after John 3.16. And it's probably the most misquoted or at least misapplied verse as well. Um, so you need to know, this is not like a, like a Clark Kent kind of favorite verse where you chant this verse and you're able to leap tall buildings in a single bound, right? That's not what this verse is about. Um, let's just be honest. If you are Daniel Cresswell, no matter how hard you chant this verse, you are not going to dunk a basketball, okay? <laughs> You're not. Right, Daniel? This verse just, a springboard. There you go. <laughs> this verse in the springboard. Yeah, just a springboard would probably do it. Well. If you are Larry Trotter, no matter how hard you chant this verse, you are not going to be asked to be one of the lead singers on the next CD. You're not. Okay? The verse doesn't, it's, that's not what it's saying. This is patently not what it's saying. It's, it's not saying you can do anything you can imagine or desire if you rub Genie Jesus' lamp. Okay? Let's start by understanding what Paul means by each phrase. When he says, I can do, I can do all things. This is not a reference to a, a kind of a can-do or just-do-it mentality. Uh, ben Merkel makes a strong case for understanding the language Paul uses here that's rendered can-do not as the ability to accomplish something, but as the ability to prevail in the midst of something. As Paul is saying here, I can prevail in all things. I can persevere in suffering and hardship and lack and plenty. He's not saying, if I read this verse, I can 
score more touchdowns or be a millionaire. I can prevail in all things. What things does he have in mind? Again, it's not that he can do anything he desires. The things he has in mind are the things he just mentioned in the previous two verses. Look at verse 12. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In any, in any and every circumstance means the exact same thing as I can do all things. Okay? Some of your Bibles actually put it this way. They say, I can prevail in all these things, in plenty or in want. In every circumstance, I can be faithful. Paul is saying he can endure, even prevail in any circumstance, rich or poor, comfort or agony, anything, because he knows the secret of contentment. And the secret's in that last phrase of verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The secret of contentment is the strength that Christ gives to his people. Not my strength, not my resolve, This is no longer self-sufficiency. This is Christ-sufficiency. The scriptures teach that Jesus indwells the life of every believer by the presence of his indwelling spirit who is an empowering spirit, he's called by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. He strengthens us to prevail in faithfulness in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. How does he strengthen us? as we already said, by his spirit that indwells us. And we, we'd also see that he, he, he strengthened us by protecting us, protecting us from falling into temptation. This is why Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, right? Deliver us from evil and lead us not into temptation. Our God strengthens us as he protects us from temptation and delivers us from evil. He strengthens us by letting us taste a greater satisfaction. Listen to the enticing offer of the Psalms for soul satisfaction in God. Psalm 90, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Psalm 107, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Psalm 145 says, you open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The language of satisfaction, body and soul, belongs to God. He strengthens us by letting us taste of it so that we long for it more than we long for the lesser satisfactions of sin and stuff that never satisfy. Ecclesiastes, the the wise writer of Ecclesiastes says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. The language of satisfaction, body and soul, belongs to God. He strengthens our faith and resolve can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul is saying to us that he, and by his example, we can prevail in any situation, no matter how difficult, 
whether in great lack or great abundance, we can be found faithful to Christ by his strength. We can prevail over the sin and temptation that comes to us in the midst of that. So you have a source of strength on your hardest days. When A.D. talks about being in that tube for the MRI and holding your breath and being still, strength from Christ is for that day. Christ is your strength when you've run out of your own resources and you know you just can't make it on your own anymore. Christ is your strength. This means that you never have to sin. Christ will be enough for you if you will cling to him, run to him, draw near to him, trust and hope in him, plead with him, seek refuge in him. He is enough for you in every imaginable situation you will ever face. He will strengthen you to prevail in all things. So now, Let's use this time of remembrance as we come to the Lord's table together. And think about the love of Jesus demonstrated on the cross for us. To run to him and find grace to strengthen us in our time of need. To come here and remember that you are loved, that your sins have been washed away by Christ. Come to him and find strength, soul strength, so you can prevail against the devil and his snares set for your soul. The table at North Wake is open to anyone who's a follower of Jesus, who's willing to confess their sins and come to Christ in their time of need. And as you come to the table today again, as is our pattern, if you use the center aisle and the wall aisles to approach, and then we'll use these two aisles to return to our seats, And if you would, just allow a little bit of space as you're in line to approach the table today. Let me pray for us. And we'll come and partake of the elements. You take them back to your seat. And if you'll hold them until everyone has been served, we'll take them all together as God's people. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy on us. I think every one of us probably thinks of things we shouldn't think about today and can, can easily conjure to mind uh, situations where we are not content. Have mercy on us. Jesus, help us. We need you. This life you offer us is so much better than the life we live on our own, so we, we come to you with the hope that we can prevail in all things by the strength that you give to us, your people. Even as we come to this table and remember the depth of your love for us, um, help us, Lord, strengthen us, even by our remembering. Jesus, we pray in your name.
on the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. that same night after the meal, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. Take and drink. 